before we begin today, some notes. I know it has been far too long since we have been in your feed, but this time I am serious. We are back, and we will stay back. Weekly Thoughts from Aunt Wu episodes will be coming out every single week. We will be powering ahead into book three as soon as we wrap up the finale of book two this week and next week. Aunt Wu is expecting you. Yes, welcome back. Today we are discussing book two, episode 19, The Guru, part one of the finale. Today on the show, we have Corey and returning guest, our typical finale guest, as it seems, Julia. Sup. So. Let's uh, let's get 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 right into this. Um, this is the finale, and I don't want this to go four hours long, so we're gonna do our best to to keep that from happening. So, starting off with our initial thoughts. Uh, it's been a while, so Corey, initial thoughts. Why don't you uh, kickstart us here? Great. All right, Julia, how about yourself? I also was going to say that I really like this episode because it's very Star Wars and I love Star Wars. And Empire is also my favorite Star Wars movie. Like my, should be. Um, my biggest complaint about this episode is I love it as a standalone episode. I'm really disappointed with the follow-through. I feel like they introduced a lot of great stuff and then they kind of ignored it especially with the whole attachments thing i really felt like there wasn't enough uh long-lasting consequences of it it kind of just got brushed away in the next episode but um other than that i do really enjoy the episode and uh it's gonna be a lot of fun to talk about yeah yeah so for my thoughts so i this is obviously an episode that I and I think everyone remembers pretty pretty vividly, you know, being one of the the obviously a season finale and being, you know, a, an iconic moment within the series. That being said, I, I definitely like this episode a little bit more in my memory than I did actually watching it. There are some issues with this episode that we will get into um, that 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 really do permeate the episode. It's still great, and there's some things about this that, I, that we're going to get into really deep that I think are, are quite phenomenal. But I did think that this was an episode I was a little bit um, underwhelmed by kind of watching it with the critical eye that comes from, from re-watching it now. And I think that that's, this is kind of going to be similar to some of the episode, other episodes like that that are kind of very iconic, very memorable, but maybe have a few more issues with it than they seemed at the start um 
However, let's uh, let's get right into it. Um, let's not spend too much time on our initial thoughts and then actually get into the episode. So this episode up opens with one of the more bizarre scenes with with Iro and Zuko and our new happy, optimistic, positive Zuko. So so you two are more pro Zuko than I am. So how do you feel about happy, optimistic Zuko? When I was a kid, I remember always feeling like a sense of relief during this part of the series because I hated it when Zuko would make Iroh upset when I was younger. Like it physically caused me to feel uncomfortable in real life. So I remember as a kid, I always liked this part where Zuko was being nice and like optimistic and happy and wasn't always butting heads with Iroh and making him feel like shit. So I, that kind of translates every time I rewatch it. So it's, I, I still feel the feel some uh, feel the same way. Yeah, I, it almost feels like something out of a fanfic, like a nice happy. They open a tea shop and everything's great. Au, like uh, almost. I mean, I enjoy it for Zuko and the same reasons uh, Gloria said. Just you know, it's nice to see them happy and um, kind of a calm before the storm. Uh it kind of feels a little out of place rewatching it, I'd have to say, but I still do enjoy it. Yeah, for me, I just feel it's a little bit, it feels a little out of place with where they eventually go with Zuko's character because obviously we all know, and, and even they knew, that Zuko eventually is going to become a good guy, become a good person. And even, but even when that happens, even when Zuko fully changes size, he never becomes this this really only happens at the beginning of this episode and i understand that on some level part of that is the post you know to some degree like post fever symptoms that he, he he's coming out of this this quote unquote transformation and he's not really sure how to how to act and he's feeling admiration towards his, his uncle and it's it's small that it's not that big a deal but i did think, find it just a tad like over the top of like oh look zuko's good now and then obviously you know, very quickly that's gonna gonna change within the next episode. I just I'm a little like I feel like it was it was laying it on a little thick there. And to be honest, I think that all in all the optimism optimism of the of the beginning of the episode is a little thick. I mean, you kind of like it seems like it's like oh everything's everything's great, everything's going really well, and it's like I don't know. I felt it felt a little like well we all know it's a season finale. We know it's not gonna stay like this, and it almost felt a little too. Um, how we say a little too much, but not not in a bad way, just in a just in a slightly off-putting. Yeah, I mean, I'd say part of it is I think it's Zuko attempting to turn over a new leaf, and I think that it's kind of like a almost like a New Year's resolution thing where you're. Uh, trying to just change yourself and you're very very into it and you know mm-hmm. like going to the mm-hmm. gym every day oh, and eating healthy the worst time at the gym is the first two weeks in january can't stand it i think he's forcing himself to be optimistic and happy mm. i don't think mm. that's really zuko i think that's him being like wow new year new me um, that's it's interesting I, I, I hadn't i hadn't thought of it like that but I definitely do agree that it's a bit too laid on too thick still, and it feels like they're kind of slipping more into like a traditional kid show lazy storytelling. 
Um, and it other kids shows I was I would kind of let this go, but I feel like I expect more of them because I know they're capable of such quality storytelling. I don't think so. I think especially if this was like a shorter series, like one season long, I would agree. But the fact that this is like spread over open over like a good extended period of time, I think this leaves a nice dichotomy and like some breathing room, especially because as you know, everything does go to shit. So I think this is like a welcome thing in a series this long. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's not that I don't like that Zuko is like treating Iroh well. I think that's fine. It's just I think that they kind of go just a, a tad far with the extreme like you know he's smiling and 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 really happy and like i i'm fine with sort of the he wants to share this moment with iroh and he congratulates iroh on these things but it's like i feel like the like the juke scene like the he i'd love a bowl and he's like seems like super you know almost over the top i thought was just a it just seemed a little like out of character for zuko and maybe like it almost it felt so jarring that it almost felt obvious that it wasn't going to be what Zuko's character was moving forward. And I would have liked it maybe a little more if it was just a little bit more subtle, and then we could feel like there's actually change coming. But when a change is that dramatic, it's almost like, well, no, Zuko's character isn't going to suddenly be like peppy, happy optimist all the time. Well, I think that's kind of the point that he's it obviously couldn't last. Mm-hmm. It was almost mm-hmm. a too good to be yeah. true kind of yeah. thing. And he was, uh, at least in my interpretation, really forcing it and it wasn't a permanent change. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's fair. And I think that if you, if, if you read it as, as him putting on airs and kind of acting a certain way, it, it actually reads a lot better and, and sort of makes it, it, cha- it makes it that it, it feels jarring because it is because, you know, that's the way it is. As for kind of the transition in terms of um, something on a really different note, positively, is I love the subtlety at Sokka's um, coming into the water the water tribe camp. Um, I really like that that the initial moment between Sokka and his dad is just Sokka and then hi dad. There's no like doesn't need more dialogue than that, and I and I think a lot of lesser shows try to cram in a ton of. I haven't seen you in so long. Oh, it's such great to see you. It's just like you can feel that that was all that was necessary. And I really, I really like that they're that they they kind of pull back there a little bit. I absolutely agree. It almost feels like uh, Sokka is kind of a little kid again when he steps into the tent. Just hi, Dad. He doesn't need to um, be uh, this sappy reunion where they're hugging each other and crying. It's just it's enough uh it's very well done mm-hmm. i don't think they could have gotten away with it if they did it, like the opposite way too because Sokka is clearly like rushed to be the new man and leader of like everything if you think about it like the tribe so he can't even have the necessity of showing emotion like that even though he probably deep down wants to mm-hmm. well again like katara katara on the other hand is like different and like i also like how in this episode they like show the differences between how they view the dad, like how Sokka and Katara are different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we're gonna we're gonna see that the, the huge difference in you know in in the first episode of the new of book three where Katara just you know yeah has actually has a lot of issues with her father and and, and the decisions that that he made. 
we get to see the first moment of the Earth King kind of post uh, post Daily Exodus or post Long Fang Exodus, and I really like the sort of an interesting thought that comes out when you when you see him just kind of talking to the not Kyoshi warriors and kind of explaining the entirety of what's going on in the city. And I really like that it feels you at first. I'm like, wait, why the hell is he telling them this? Like, yeah, they're allies, but they're not like everything but then it actually starts to make sense that like the earth king is not sure who he can trust and is told by the avatar who's his new friend that these are these are skilled warriors and also like he's kind of a kid like he's not really a person who is is able to make the kind of decisions that a an actual ruler um should which makes sense considering he's never been a king he's never had to think about should i be telling these random strangers the entirety of our plans and i think that it's a it's a kind of a subtle nod to like it's not like the earth king steps in from like years of being a figurehead and is great at running a country and no big deal like it's like very obvious that what long fang has done by keeping the earth king from having any power or any sort of be essentially being an adult has crippled his ability to sort of make good decisions yeah, he's essentially been coddled his entire life. And he is, like you said, like a child. He doesn't know how to be a good ruler. None, he's never had to do any of this before. And so he's just kind of flailing. And I think he's overly trusting because of that. Because he isn't really a politician. He doesn't really know that he can't trust anyone who walks in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he's never had to think of it, about it before. So, with that, let's let's get into the guru, and I want to kind of do the entirety of the guru um, together because I think that it, we do jump around a little bit, but I think that it's 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 helpful to sort of look at the guru in entirety and kind of talk about. Talk about that from from the whole. And and right at the start, I, I just have to commend, I love how much effort that they put in to make the guru just everything about him feels like Buddhism, which is what his philosophy is based on. It's, it's, it's tantric Buddhism. And I love that it's it, everything about what he's doing kind of feels what, the way it should, especially when you're going to sort of base something very real. I mean, the, the chakras is a real thing. This isn't something Avatar created. If you're going to base it off of kind of a real world religion they put a lot of effort into make it feel real and feel like it fits this world and i think that 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 they do a great job with that so now looking at the at the oh sorry about that go ahead julia i think with uh you know, modeling off of a real world religion, it can be kind of uh, a little precarious because you don't want to make light of it or take certain liberties that might be, you know, a little offensive or just, you know, kind of showing it in a bad light. But I think they do a really good job of illustrating it and, you know, showing kind of the how it fits in and they're not parodying it it's really something uh that they're giving a lot of uh like credence to and i think they did a very good job adapting it to the world like you said and it just 
is something that really stuck with me, the image of um, moving the algae out of the pools. That's something I remember so vividly from watching as a child. Mm-hmm. And they did such mm-hmm. they just had such a good portrayal of it and all the metaphors and the visuals. I think everything about how they handled it was great. Yeah. I I, I, I definitely would agree. I think that I, I think this is an is just an easy thing to have messed up. I think that this is this is something that I can I can see a lesser show like very easily turning into either a complete joke or sort of not respecting what it should be and and it going awry very fast and i think that they do a a fantastic job of of that so with that being said i want to sort of look at the at the the chakra scene as in its entirety and i think that i do watching this again and kind of watching this with a bit more of a critical eye does feel like it does feel a little short to me this whole like the, the entirety of the chakra scene really only takes up about half of one episode, which is about 10 minutes of screen time, which is kind of an absurdly short amount of time. Yeah, they definitely made it very easy for Aang, the, almost the entire thing. I, I had a memory of it being such a long, you know, drawn out process, each chakra, but it's really each chakra they clear in about 30 seconds. Aang meditates barely struggles and then okay move on next chakra yeah um yeah i think they may have benefited from just making this entire episode just ang and the guru um i feel like you needed to switch up some of the stories though because not everyone's into that and that could have been slow because like obviously we're gonna make it to the other side of this it's like there's no doubt he's gonna clear the chakras other than the fact that he doesn't. That's a different story. And I, I don't think you would have had this ending if you only focus on Aang doing this. And if, if you did, it wouldn't have had the same impact. So you needed to have multiple stories just to break up the pace of the episode. But if you if you think about this, and both of you you know connected this to episode five, which is obviously what this, this sort of has a lot of roots in, like the amount of time that Luke spends with um, Yoda, and then if you think about what he actually does, it feels a lot more meaningful than this. I mean, if you think about it, like he spends a fair amount of time just dealing with the doubt issue and fear. And if you and if you compare that to this, which is like he, he does essentially, you know, what it's the, all, you know all of the to- chakras. He goes through all of these different things. It, it kind of is a lot. And I think each individual, like each one individually feels good. Like the message um, made is, is good. I like what each of them say. I'm just kind of a little like, I feel like Aang dealing with all of the guilt that he has should take more than just accept this. And he goes, okay. And then zoom, it's accepted. Everything's great. And it does feel like, just a tad unearned. Different than Luke Skywalker in more ways than I can count. And I think it fits better with Aang. Because like one, once Aang gets Zen, I think he's able to make those alterations when his mind is clear enough. I, I, think I, Luke... I, I don't think it's possible for me to disagree with you more on that. Which is saying something, because you and I have disagreements, but... I, I think you're completely wrong because to me, Aang's 
I mean, we've talked about this at length, but Aang's character is the fundamental of him accepting the mantle of the Avatar. And one of the chakras is like, you must accept you are the Avatar. And he's just like, okay, I did it. And that's like, that's going to become a major part of the finale. And like, it's, it's basically Aang's entire life. Like the entirety of Aang's character arc essentially was quote unquote solved in 30 seconds. Just seems a little much. No, we're at a much different part of the show than we were in season one when he just goofed off all the time and Aang is a lot more mature right now. It's only been, what, two years, though? And I think he's been struggling. It's not been two years. It's been, like, like six months. Nope. The entirety of the show lasts between uh, the... Remember, that it's the winter solstice is... Um, yeah. Yeah, so it... No, it is not, not even close to been two years. Yeah. Not counting the 100 years he spent in ice. Yes. Yes. So, and his whole arc has been about how he is a separate person from the title of Avatar, and it's been something he's struggled with the entire show, and it just gets resolved away. And I think that's something that should have taken a bit longer. stuff major stuff to do where him being the avatar was quite necessary even if you want to go back to like the worst episode that we all agree on or one of the worst episodes which was the divide where like he used his quote-unquote pull as like the avatar to fix the situation i think he's accepted it more a lot now where we are in the show than it was back in season one i mean so. i i i agree that he's accepted it more but he hasn't accepted it completely yeah. But you, you you can't, in an episode like this, and we could debate if this should be a multiple-part episode or one part, but you can't have all that doubt, which you could do, like, say, in Star Wars over, like, the t span of a movie, where one-third of the movie was Luke with Yoda, while you, you have 22 minutes to tell this story. Then so. you maybe don't do it? Yeah, I don't know. That's why I feel like this episode could have just been Aang. And I, I was actually thinking more Clone Wars than Empire because Clone Wars did have episodes that didn't have cutting between, you know, five different story arcs and they just stuck with one character and had really introspective uh, episodes playing with these concepts. And I think it would have been better to have that where you're just forcing the viewer to stick with Aang and not get a respite so that you can really break through and have um, these character developments rather than just everything being solved or, immediately. I mean, you could also just, you can split the difference here. I mean, it, increasing the amount of time spent on the guru doesn't necessarily mean you don't cut away to other situations. You could just extend this episode into multiple parts and then it's, you know, it does, it does this, both of those things. I don't, I don't think that's, that's really the point here. I think that it, the point to me is that it just, if you real, if this is what you like, you are doing, and like at the end of the day, that the, the chakras are not invented for the show; they are a real thing. So it's not like they could have changed the chakras to what they wanted. However, I, I think that if if this is the direction you're going to go, if you if you're really going to go here, I, I kind of feel like you should just 
do it. I feel like you kind of need to just do it. Exactly. However, the on the positive side, because I'm not, I don't want to like spend like 20 minutes bashing this, because I don't think these are bad. This is a bad group of scenes. I think that there's actually a lot of great here. For one, the visuals of the chakras is, I mean, phenomenal. Like I, I can't even say enough good about how much I love what they do with playing with Aang's mind. With the earth, with the temple, with the guru, everything about it, it is visually stunning. Completely I, agree. I, I love that's an understatement for me. Like, so it's some of the best I've seen in a cartoon. Like, just the colors, the everything about it was like perfect. That's what really stuck with me about this episode. When I think back to it, like watching it for the first time, it's really the visuals, especially at the end with the big ang, the cosmic ang. Like that's what really stuck in my mind more so than what actually occurred there. And I think that's the strongest point of the episode, just the amount of effort and uh, hard work that went into it. Like you can tell how much they care and how much they love this show, the creators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think that they, yeah, I mean, I, I, all of it. The, 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 the cosmic energy scene looks, looks great. The, the scene with the, with the air nomads, with them sort of puffing into clouds of smoke, just looks, it, it just looks so great. It, it visually, it tells, it tells you how Aang is feeling, and, and it, it, it just it feels so good. I, I can't, you know, I really just can't even say enough great about how, how much they, they make the visuals here perfect. Um, I did, I did like the, like, really blatant, blatant Star Wars thing where it just, I just almost wanted to hear some the guru be like, fear is the path to the dark side during the, uh, the opening of the, the fear chakra. I mean, it literally was that, and I was like, okay, guys, ca- ca- calm down. This cannot be more of a Star Wars episode. And it's funny, because, like, I equate the Avatar, the position of Avatar, in such a different place than I equate what a Jedi is. So, like, I, I think that is a little heavy-handed. I mean, look, at the end of the day, they're both heroes' journeys. So, on some level, I mean, yes, this is very much based on Star Wars, but, like, it also is the both of them are based on the same archetype. So it's not like, like, it's not like they made Star Wars in, you know, in a fantasy world. It, there is a, there is some, you know, we have to give them some leeway. Sure, but I think every avatar can deal with a whole host of emotions that are completely different. I feel like every avatar should be themselves and handle. Here's a very important point that I want to want to make about this: is that I think that it is one hundred percent clear that this is a airbender philosophy being applied to the avatar and this is not standard avatar procedure i do not think that roku or kiyoshi sat down with a guru and opened their chakras i think that this is very specific to airbenders and to Aang. would you agree with that statement okay good because i think that 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 okay, Julia. 
Quora to really make any generalizations, I feel, about how avatars go about unlocking the avatar state. But that that's an interesting thought. I hadn't even considered that. But even ignoring Cora, if you just if you just think about what what you said, I mean, right off the bat, the um, the guru talks about being a um, you know a, a spiritual um, friend to the Airbender or or, or a um, and a friend to to um, Master. Oh my God, I'm just being really stupid right now. Um, that um, he is a friend of Monkeyatso, and that it, everything about this feels. I, we know that airbending is based on Buddhism, and this feels, and this this is straight Buddhism. And I think that it's it is pretty. It's even within the the last Airbender, it feels to me like this is an Airbender type of. This is Airbender philosophy, and something specific to Ang's journey as an Airbending avatar. Obviously, we also can see later on in Korra that. Korra doesn't doesn't do this, so like we know that as well. But even within this story, I, I think it is it definitely feels to me that this is something personal to Aang and not like just the thing that all avatars do. And the reason I bring that up and the reason I think that it's that that's really important is because it deals with some of the slight issues that come up within this within this when you look at some of the things Aang theoretically has to do. The big, obviously, being the attachment one that, that I think we can just kind of get into on the whole, where Aang is, is told he needs to detach himself from the world and, and let in all the pure cosmic energy. And then later on in the finale, we're told 100% that the Avatar cannot detach themselves from the world because their duty is to the world. And like that kind of doesn't gel all that much, and I think, honestly, kind of just feels like a bit of a mistake. Um but I. Well, I think I see what you're saying, but I think that's kind of wrong, because I think there's a difference between detaching yourself from the world and detaching yourself from like personal attachments that can. If it's almost like the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, thing where it's like if say Katara, like saving Katara versus saving a whole village of people. I think that's what it means. I, more. I understand that. And that, that is what I mean though. When I say that it's important that this is specifically airbender, because if it's not, if this is what avatars have to do, well then for one thing, how did Roku have a wife? We know Roku has a wife and has a family line. And two, the whole, that whole finale thing becomes really weird. If it's like, wait, avatars are supposed to both detach themselves and not detach themselves. But if you think about it from purely an airbender perspective, this is just about um, this is this is internalized to the airbenders. It, it starts to feel a little bit more reasonable because it's not so much that it's an avatar thing. It's that this is applying airbending philosophy to the ava to to and molding it into what the avatar needs to be. Yeah, I would agree with that yeah. because that's essentially what Aang struggles with going into season three, especially the finale, just trying to uh, kind of juggle between being an airbender and an avatar and really how those uh, needs and how those expectations overlap and how they contradict. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think that would make sense that it's not necessarily a requirement of the avatar. It's just a way to kind of come to terms with 
the dual identities of being an airbender and an avatar. Yeah. Yeah. So we didn't really go in, in depth on any of the the particular chakras. Um, so are there any of them that you guys, anything that you guys want to pick out um, about the chakras themselves before we before we move on? Just the attachment one is what gets to me. Say again? The, the attachment is what gets to me mm-hmm. because of the follow through mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. So I, I, we, I guess we could we can talk about that in, in earnest now, the, the, the final chakra and the, the attachment. And I know it kind of skips ahead to the end of the episode, but that's that's fine. Um, so, yeah. So what so what do you, what what do you guys think about that? I know, I know Julia have kind of given her opinion a little bit. So, Corey, what about you? How do you feel about the the attachment um, issue? Um, it's it's like I with hearing what you said about it being more of an airbender thing i i do like that more i just i don't like the fact that as you said avatars all have their different way of going about things so like the fact that like roku is you know married and and everything i feel like every avatar should be different thus shouldn't have a set of rules so if that is the case and it is more of just an airbender thing in a way to calm Aang due to his culture, then that's, I, I am a lot more susceptible to it. All right, Julia, how about you? Yeah, I don't have a problem necessarily with the idea of Aang has to let go of his attachments. Uh, my problem is, so he does that in the next episode and then nothing happens. Like, he ends up, you know, obviously marrying Katara, and there's no indication that, you know, he can't access the Avatar state, even when he clearly has earthly attachments, and there's no real indication that he found another way to connect, to clear that chakra block. Well, he gets stabbed in the back by a protruding rock, I guess. I mean, I guess that... I would have, uh, maybe if they had made that more explicit, that that, that something like that could clear his chakra. I mean, I don't think, I don't think it clears his chakra. I'm just, I'm just joking. I just feel like they, they kind of threw it out there almost to make it fit with more of the Star Wars themes and then they weren't really willing to commit to it. Yeah, but can't you make the same argument about Empire? No, because I think the whole arc of Empire is, or of the whole original trilogy, is about Luke kind of forging his own path, especially if you view it in the light of having seen the prequels about how the Jedi were fundamentally flawed and Luke kind of carving his own path. Do I have to? I just like pretending pretending like that didn't happen. Okay, just the Clone Wars, even. I mean, alright, fine. I mean, alright. Yeah. Just, I think it's, the whole point of Luke's arc in Empire is that he's not the Jedi that Yoda wants him to be, um, but that doesn't mean he can't be a Jedi like his father before him. Um, he's carving his own path, whereas there's nothing that really feels to me that that's where they're going with Aang, like... Aang's trying to break out of this restriction. It's just like, ah, oh, I get. I guess he doesn't have to. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I definitely don't disagree with that. I think that they probably lay on the 
I, I do think it, it is a little bit like attempting to create dramatic stakes where it's like, oh, I mean, obviously that the you can't leave is, is a pure callback to Star Wars. But I think it's like an attempt to sort of create these dramatic stakes of like, is he choosing Katara versus is he choosing the Avatar state? And it helps to sort of also kind of tame Aang down where he doesn't have, we essentially, Aang doesn't have the Avatar state for the rest of, of book three until the very end. And on some level, it's like almost a balancing, like it's like the, 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 the game designers are balancing Aang a little because the Avatar state's obviously kind of broken. But I, I, I think that like, I, I think you, you do have a point there where like they, they make it, they do make it seem, especially with the, the scene with Aang kind of, you know, walking up into the cosmic energy thing as though like this actually is a big part of it. And if Aang doesn't, if Aang doesn't clear this chakra, then it's going to like cause him serious problems down the line. And that's kind of not true. I mean, I guess maybe it's true because maybe he doesn't get shot full of lightning by Azula, but then I don't know. Maybe he does. It's kind of hard to like that. That's kind of hard to say. I mean, I guess you're going to talk about this in the next episode, but when he goes into the crystal thing, I thought the whole point of that was he was letting go of Katara. Yeah, I mean, he does technically enter the Avatar state. But then, by the start of book three, he's... Nothing's changed between him and Katara. Yeah, that's fair. Corey, any thoughts here? No. Okay. Okay. All right. So we've kind of covered the majority of Aang. So let's uh, let's kind of go back and sort of tie all of the Sokka stuff together and kind of kind of do this this character to character now. Uh, it seems to be kind of the way we're, we we're doing it to this point. So not we don't get all that much from Sokka and, and seeing his family and seeing him and his father. I I did enjoy the the little the 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 sinking uh, swim the stinking the stinking sink. That was. I like that. I like that we do get to see like where Sokka came from and, and like where his where he learned comedy and how to fight. And I think that that's that's nice. Um, and I, I did like that. Like the other Water Tribe members are kind of like like Bato is like you're definitely your father's son. And it's like um, okay, I can see that maybe everyone else is not as uh, jazzed as this as, as as I think as he is. Yeah, I think it's a nice little humanizing moment. Uh away from the seriousness of, uh, and just, like, the grand scheme of things, because, uh, the monk stuff with Aang is so intense, and then it's just, you know, stink and sink, just, uh, adding some lightheartedness so it's not just all epic stakes. And I, mm-hmm. and I hope that this can lay to rest any, any concerns that I am anti-comedy. I love the comedy in this episode. I think that they do a really good job of balancing it properly and using it to break up scenes and, and but keep the tone from getting from going too far in the other direction. So if anyone accuses me of like like hating comedy, like no, I don't hate comedy. The comedy in this episode is great. Um, but the kind of um, then we get the sort of the big the big kind of moment with the two of them uh, with Sokka with. Um, Hakoda saying the rest of you men getting re- get ready for battle and, and you know Sokka like this is everything he wants to hear this 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 moment of like his father accepting that he is that he is you know I'm gonna say a man and I don't want to get into a whole discussion about the implications of me being like being a man but whatever but like the fact that he feels like he's he's able to like be one of these men be one of the warriors of his village being able to fight and it, it really like it make it's everything Sokka wants 
and you can just feel like how how much it means to him to have his father think of him as as a warrior like that yeah i think it's um a really great uh uh you know just kind of the climax of Sokka's character arc because i think from the moment he's introduced he's really trying to uh live up to his father's expectations for him and kind of fill in those huge uh footprints but um and now he really feels like he's capable of doing it and that he's getting his father's approval and it's everything he's wanted to do since his father left and i think it's a really great moment for Sokka. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love their relationship. It's like actually perfect. I mean, I think Sokka's dad is like done so well. Again, like as I said, like as it relates to how Katara views it differently versus how Sokka views it, I, I think like their relationship is really good and like it helps build Sokka for the rest of the show as being like that the leader, like the absolute, you know, leader and more mature he was beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. He always wanted to like get, he always wanted to get to this point. And like, theoretically, you could say he wanted this and was like, like this from episode one. But obviously, like, I think this is such a turning point for Sokka's but character. I'll say this, I don't think that episode one Sokka would be like, if if episode one Sokka was in this position, I, I I almost like feel like it would not have worked. Like it, the the amount of work that they've do, that the show has done to see Sokka's growth to where we see him in, in you know in the very beginning and he is like he really is bumbling. He really is like kind of a nothing. And the fact that we really get to see it now that like he has he has grown up and the world and, and more importantly his father is seeing that and it's not like even though his father hasn't been with them forever it's it's just great to see it's like great to see this for like for a second it's like i'm i'm happy for Sokka that he gets to have this moment and i feel like that's that's a great testament to when you're creating fictional characters that i can be i can feel happy that Sokka, that a, that a fictional character got to have a nice moment with his father and i'm like that makes me happy is like i think almost the ultimate um, compliment for a fictional universe. And that's what that's what I was saying earlier on in the episode where you, you were, we were talking about Iroh and Zuko, and like just seeing Zuko treat Iroh right. It's like you. It's like I swear I, I'm not exaggerating. Like when I was younger, I felt like warm and fuzzy on the inside. The entire arc where Zuko was not butting heads with Iroh, and every time like Iroh was proud of Zuko, like it rubbed off on me. And, like, the same exact warm, fuzzy feeling can be said about, you know, uh, like, this entire part of the show right now, too, uh, in my opinion. I, I think it's just really, like, Sokka and his dad, like, it's just done so well. Like, it just rubs off on you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Moving on from Sokka, we have a character we have actually not talked about yet. Let's talk about the greatest earthbender in the world, one Toph Beifon. And, I mean, is there really anything to say about this other than Toph is amazing? Like, Yeah, there's not much to critically analyze besides, you know, if you want to nitpick the actual practicality of finding, like, the earth particles in the metal. It's kind of stupid, but if you just accept it that Toph is Magneto now, you just roll with it. 
I mean, I will. There's a couple things I do want to say. First, I want to give credit where credit is due. As as much as we may hate the guys who capture her, the one guy who says you may think you're the greatest earthbender in the world, but even you can't bend metal. In theory, that guy is somewhat responsible for the creation of metal bending, which is cool. Give that guy get give that guy some credit. Um. I like love any fictional universe that explains new like I'm gonna use game terms like Mark used earlier, like new mechanics with the science of their own universe. So like I completely buy the whole theory behind metal bending. Like it makes perfect sense to me. And not only does it make perfect sense to me, it make Top is the perfect character to learn it. Like there's no other earthbender that could have learned metal bending outside of Top. So, like, every, it's, like, the perfect storm right now. I completely agree with that, and that's why I just feel like you just have to suspend your disbelief a little bit, and if you do that, then you can accept that, yeah, it's an explanation of the mechanics within the game's world, or the show's world, and then it's great, and no one else could have done it besides Toph, and um, I think if... I, I definitely feel, jumping ahead, that it cheapens it uh, once everyone learns it in Korra, but that's a different discussion. But I'm okay with it because Toph is the OG but, school teacher. And this is something that, why not? Why can't it be taught? Here's why I don't have a problem with like a lot of people learning it. And it's because I, I think that they, that the idea that metal bending isn't hard, it's just no one, because of the way Toph interacts with the world, the fact that she is, she is, has to be so in, ter- in tuned with earth and was put in this situation where she was desperate the idea like it's not so much that Toph like Toph didn't create metal bending she discovered it she discovered the fact that you could do this and I like I almost like the idea that it's not that this was it's not about being difficult it's about being only Toph had the had the skill set to find those pieces of earth within the metal and I think that it to me, that was like that actually makes it even better to me that it's not like Toph was like a god and was the only person who could ever do this thing. To me, that would almost be like I would, would almost cheapen it for me where it would feel like, oh, so so the only reason this worked is because Aang happened to find literally the most powerful earthbender who's ever walked the earth and no one else can compete with her. To me, that would be like somewhat like, okay, great. But instead, it's, it's not that he found the Yes, we, you know, we joke this is the greatest earthbender in the world, but it's he found someone who, because of her blindness and because she uses earthbending to see, was able to look for something that no one else could have. And it to me, that's a better... I like that a lot more than the, oh, they're just, like, ultra-powerful. I also, like, everyone compares Avatar The Last Airbender to anime, and this is one of the things where it. Avatar it just beats. It, it, it just is. is an anime. It, it is an anime. Well, I we could talk about this, but like this is a debate for a different time. But like what this show does better than an anime is, I feel in an anime, Toph would have done it. She would have been in the cage. She would have metal bended, and then she would have explained it out loud, like. <laughs> And then it just would have been, that's it. It would have been a part of her repertoire. I think visually showing it through her eyes and having it be like that type of process is so much better 
than if it's like just a way she got like a deus ex the way she just well, got out of it you don't like it when characters scream their attack names before they use them i absolutely love it and, and in fact this maybe the show would be better if everyone screamed no, out things but my point I, is I don't, I don't i don't have a problem with it but i don't think the show would have benefited from that I think uh, during fight but, scenes, they should cut to everyone's face uh, and have them all lined up on the screen. You know, the, the shock face. Yeah. Ah, there you go. Yeah. That's what, the that's what they need. talk about what they need to saw. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one, one question I have for you guys, though. Are those guys dead? Sure. Like, like, I'm trying to figure out. I mean, I guess in theory, someone could come along and like, get us some kind of metal saw and cut them out, but I feel like they're probably, like, things are bad for them. It's just, it's just... In kids' shows, that's how you kill people. Just make it, leave it ambiguous. Well, yeah, but... They poke yeah. fun at themselves for court. that, like, with the jet thing. Or jet, or... Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I talked to you in great length how I think Jet should have died. He did die. It's ambiguous. No, he, he died. It's not ambiguous. Jed is dead. I don't know. Um, you don't um, see him in the spirit world. What do you mean you don't see him in the spirit world? You don't see any ghosts of people, you do you? You don't see ghosts, in, see the spirit ghosts world. in the spirit world. Hey, do you remember? Up. You see Iroh. No, you don't. Shut up. Um... All right, we're not we're not getting into a jet argument. I don't I don't I don't want to do that. So that kind of goes through most of the things that we have to talk about. I mean, I guess we didn't really talk about Katara, but Katara didn't really do anything. Oh, I guess no. We have we have Zuko and I, Zuko and Iroh stuff towards the end, and then the Azula stuff. Okay, so Zuko and Iroh. So we talked a lot about the beginning and kind of the the new happy go lucky, or not happy go lucky, but the new super happy Zuko. Um, I will say this, the, the, the moment and the look on Iroh's face when he receives the scroll about serving tea to the Earth King, I, you know what, I'm not even going to say anything. Corey, this is for you. Go ahead. <laughs> you want, it's, it's like, it's beautiful. Like, this is all he wanted. Like, all Iroh wanted to do was run a tea shop with his nephew. And like, if you want me to even get more deep than just the base surface of it, I think this is Iroh's way of keeping Zuko out of trouble, which is why I also think Z uh, Iroh's also on Cloud Nine, more so because Zuko's just accepted it. But like, it's just like the happy, how do you not have a visible smile on your face if you're watching this show at this point? Like, am I right? Well, knowing that it's a trap for one thing. But it's irrelevant because this is inner character relationship. No, I mean, it does make me very happy. Um, it's just, you know, knowing how it ends, it, it's you're like, oh, don't take the bait. Don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. But I, to be completely honest, I think that even after Iroh knows it's a trap, I almost feel like he, like, obviously he cares from like a, he doesn't want Zuko to get trapped part of this. But I almost feel like Iroh doesn't even, like, just the idea that he could it would be possible that this would happen would be enough for Iroh, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm happy for them. Just that their tea shop was flourishing aside from that. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, I guess that, that brings us to the, the, the one laying said trap, our, uh, 
are uh, the Kyoshi Warriors, who are not, in fact, the Kyoshi Warriors. Um, so how do you guys feel about this, uh, how, uh, how quickly Azul is able to discern that if she can get captured by the Dai Li, she can take over the city? I think that's what she's been raised to do, to kind of, uh, you know, infiltrate like that and really pick up on people's weaknesses and make those sort of strategies. I think that's just her area of specialty. Is Azula Palpatine? I was actually thinking more Eric from Black Panther. Huh. You know how sure. he like systematically destroys the government system. That's kind of what I was thinking. But yeah, also I was thinking Insidious and obviously Sidious. The ability to think four steps ahead. Yeah. And shoot lightning out of their hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the similarities are striking. Yeah. Yeah. That's that is that is true. Um, and they both, you know, manipulate our lovely scarred hero. It's also true, although I hesitate to use the word lovely about Anakin. I said lovable. Lovable? Anna- yes. I mean, I, I don't know. that If you look at Natalie Portman's uh, acting, it definitely seems like she's so in love. Yes, we can. We cannot, because I don't want to turn this into that argument. Or Corey and I will kill each other. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, the only thing I'll say is I do think that there's like it. It does feel just a little bit like maybe she's play like it gets a little lucky here that they um, because I, I'll say this: there is definitely a, a play here if you're Long Fang, where rather than. Um, using um, Azula to take over the city. Instead, just capture her and be like, hey, Earth King, I caught the Fire Nation princess. I'm still really good at my job. You should let me out. Right? Yeah, that's fair. I think he also uh, is dealing with an Earth King that he doesn't really know how no, no, I'm not react. saying that Long Fang would, ever, would would do that. I'm just saying if, if you're Azula and you're sort of going, okay, my play here is that I am going to like get in league with Long Fang, someone who she's whom she's never met. She doesn't know anything about other than was an Earth Kingdom av- advisor and betray uh, theoretically betrayed the Earth King. Like she doesn't know whether like exactly where his allegiances lie and like where this whole thing goes. And I think it's like. It might be just a little risky for her here that, you know, like, unless she has more knowledge about the Dai Li than, than she should, but I don't see how that's possible. That's fair. I think it was definitely a calculated risk, and worse comes to worse, she had confidence in her ability to fight her way out of it if, she was, if they did attempt to capture her. Like, if he did try to turn her into the Earth King. Um, it definitely does feel like she is... Now that you bring it up, it does seem like she is a bit more information than she should have or that we're led to believe. But I don't know. I, I never really thought about it too much. It never felt 
too unbelievable well, to me. To me, the, the reason I, I say this is because it, it feels like we know that Long Fang is like we know everything about Long Fang because we just watched what happened. Well, we've watched everything that's happened throughout Ang and um, Katar and Katar and Sokka's and Toph's dealings with him. So as viewers, Azula's actions make perfect sense from the standpoint of well, we know what Long Fang is, but I feel like she shouldn't and i almost feel like they give her more information than she should have because it's and we don't notice it because as viewers it's not like she has information that the viewers don't have it's that she has information that we have that maybe she shouldn't if that makes if everything i said makes sense to say that she did enough recon to get kind of a sense of what happened with the daily considering the earth king just the second they got there let him uh let them into his inner circle yeah maybe she talks to him more and and hears more stuff yeah and considering he was giving them the details of the invasion plan i don't think it's too much of a stretch to believe that if azul asks so what happened with that uh Dai Li yeah, guy that long fang guy yeah yeah, yeah i get it Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. I, I guess I guess I, there, there's it, there's there could be more off screen if we just assume that there's off screen stuff that we didn't that we didn't get to see that it then it kind of works. All right. So, is there anything else that you guys would like to talk about in this episode before we begin to wrap up? No, I think we pretty much hit everything. Corey? Okay. So, before we get into the finale, just like to say that there is some bonus content on this episode of the podcast. Now, we have, for the most part in Thoughts Want Woo, fully ignored the whole spoilers thing, and obviously the point of the podcast is to talk about this with spoilers. And there are... We even will do that with from time to time with The Legend of Korra and talk about things, spoilers within The Legend of Korra and kind of painted things. That being said, I know that there are some people who have not seen all of Korra and there is a large discussion that we need to have about the implications of this episode into the events of Book 3 of Legend of Korra. So if you have not seen Book 3 of Legend of Korra, that is fine. However, I highly recommend that you should go and watch it. Watch the episode until the normal ending point. We will give our ratings and we will move on. However, if you'd like to hear us discuss the implications for Korra, just stick on after the uh, the end and uh, there'll be some bonus content for you guys to enjoy. But without further ado, let's get into our final thoughts and our ratings for this episode. So it's a finale and it has been a little while, of course. So why don't I do a quick refresher on how ratings for us work. We are rating everything between a 0 and a 10, a 10 being perfect, a 0 being awful, and we are rating against the entirety of television, not just Avatar, not just good stuff, but the entirety of television. So, Corey, your final thoughts and your rating for Book 2, Episode 19, The Guru. I absolutely love this episode for all the reasons I stated in the beginning being a big Star Wars mark and this episode being very Star Wars, especially with the Aang stuff. But more so than that, there's so many heartwarming 
things that like wrap this up into a neat blanket. You you got you got the stuff with Sokka, you got the stuff with Iroh and Zuko, you 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 got the foundation of metal bending, which becomes one of the most important things that ever happened to earth bending. Um, this episode has it all. Uh, I have to give this episode a nine point five. Okay, Julia, how about you? I think uh, this is definitely still one of my favorite episodes of the series. Looking back, and now that we've talked about it more critically, there are definite issues I have with it that I didn't have, you know, watching it as a child. But I think Mm -hmm. just reflecting back on the impact it had on me that first time I watched it, and the impact it still has now, especially with the visuals, um, even with my issues with it, I think I have to give that some credit and i'm going to go with a nine out of ten okay so so i think i'm a little bit more in the julia camp in this case i think that this episode is really really good there are things that i really really do like about it but there's just a nagging sense in my in my mouth that maybe maybe there's some things that i would have done a little bit better and i think that it just can't be ignored that the guru scenes are fantastic individual scenes they all work really really well but it's just a tad unearned and i think that that's a very important part of storytelling is earning your moments and i think that they just they could have just done a little bit more um to sort of do that properly so i am going to dock this episode a couple of points from where i would have initially got it when i first my first thought that this was probably going to be something around a 9.5 i kind of finished watching the episode and thought maybe more like a nine and now I'm actually kind of gone down a little bit more. I think this episode does have some issues. So I'm going to give this episode an 8.1 out of 10, which is still really, really good. I mean, anything over an eight is still saying that this is in the absolute upper echelon of television, but it's just missing some of the things that make kind of the truly spectacular Avatar episodes work. And I think that that's just kind of um, inescapable. So with that, We will say thank you. We will say thank you to Julia for being on the show. We always appreciate her having uh, having her on. So thank you, Julia. Yes. And after that, Corey and I will get into book three of Legend of Korra. So we will see you in a second. All right, you can thank... Or I guess, Julia, you muted yourself. Um... Give it one second so I can just record a time. All right, Corey. So obviously this episode is really important for setting up the character of Zahir, who is following this uh, tantric Buddhism to its um, to its maximum. And during the ending, I, all I really wanted to say was I just kind of wanted, if that the guru had instead said, you know, um, let go of your earthly tether, enter the void empty and become wind would have been kind of perfect because I do really like that, uh, that saying. So I'm curious how you feel about this, um, the, the guru stuff, knowing where it's eventually going to go with Zaheer. Well, Azir, Zaheer is my favorite Avatar villain. I think I've been on record saying this. I think he is the most complex and I enjoy his motivations pretty much 
throughout the entire arc up until his defeat. Um, and I, I think, I think this is such a good, di- like I used this word earlier, like dichotomy about where Aang is going towards the end of this. And by the end of this episode, Aang didn't complete the training and doesn't have real stakes in this, but seeing it taken to its extreme, I think is just such an interesting concept. So I, I, I am in love with the setup behind it, and I love the callbacks to it, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the, to, to me, like, and this is, this obviously gets at something we were, we were talking about a little bit before, about the sort of, how we know that this is an av- an airbender thing and not so much an avatar thing, because we know what eventually happens with Korra and, um, and by extension here. But what I really like about this, what I really like about this airbender philosophy is, and something that I always that always stuck out to me a little bit when I was a kid watching this is that I was always a little bit unsure about whether or not um, the guru was actually a good guy. Like I always, when I was a little kid, and, and obviously part of this is my you know feeling towards Ang and Katara, but I always felt a little bit like he wants Ang to like not save Katara, he wants Aang to not follow his heart, isn't that kind of like the kind of darker thing to do? And I think that that that, that kind of sense of like, I'm not entirely sure if this philosophy is quote-unquote good, really works from the standpoint of we eventually get to see that no, this philosophy isn't good, this philosophy is actually quite, um, quite bad if it is played out to its extreme. This philosophy is neither good nor bad. It is a neutral philosophy, and it entirely depends on whether you have altruistic motives or if you don't. Well, he is primarily motivated by, like, I'm so stupid for, this is just the freshest thing in my mind, quoting, like, Kylo Ren, like, you gotta destroy the past if you have to. I think Zaheer saw the rot in society, and thought the only way that the world can like be reborn from that rot is by destroying it and the entire system i think at his core he's an anarchist and that his anarch obviously anarchy is like being an anarchist it's like they literally personified his lack of connection to that the system by having him fly like i think flying is the way you see it personified is that he has no earthly attached well f- f- airbending is about freedom so it yeah i mean I, I definitely agree with that so i think it's perfect because an anar- an anarchist at its core has no earthly attachments because there's no system and especially because he believes that all the corruption in the world is caused by the system i i think it just works perfectly mm-hmm yeah, and I, I guess my, my point, yeah, I mean, obviously, and, like, also what makes it here really great is that he's not even, like, evil. He just has, his, his views are extreme to the point where they probably would cause more harm than good. But I think that that, that, that that would only work if the philosophy that he's using is one that we almost have some familiarity with. And I feel like if, if Zaheer didn't have this guru philosophy if, if, if it wasn't tied to this whole thing i almost feel like he would have been he'd be far less of a sympathetic character which would have taken away from what he is as a great villain i also like how even though 
Zaheer is a master airbender. His philosophy goes up beyond government. I, I think he also has no roots or stake in just airbending and the air nation as a whole. I, I, I think that's also another big difference between Aang, who is really, really locked in on culture and his people and tradition, while Zaheer will have none of that. He's the complete opposite. He doesn't care about... Well, well, I mean, keep in mind that Aang doesn't even go through with this. Like, Aang can't let go of his earthly tether. And now, I know technically Zaheer doesn't until Polite dies. But if you were to play this out, if, if the same situation happens, if Katara died in front of Aang, Aang would not be able to use that to channel the letting go and allowing him to to achieve, let's say, in his case, the Avatar yeah, state. Like, exactly, just and that's why I think, as you said earlier on, this philosophy can go in two directions. And as at its core, you're right, it's, it's, it's very neutral, but based on the person mm-hmm. reading the exact same words is the extreme it can be taken to. And Aang takes it to no extreme, nor if I think Aang completed his training, would he have taken it to an extreme? But... But I again, Zaheer, his philosophy yeah. transcends everything, his view of everything. And I think those words gave him motivation to strengthen his resolve on something he already truly believed, especially after his imprisonment. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's even before that, I mean, he was, he was trying to to do all this stuff even before, I mean, that's why he was in prison, in prison in the first place. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's all true. I just, I I think that this, to me, I just, it feels really great to me that the writers, it, it, it genuinely feels like the writers recognize that when watching these guru scenes, something about it always left me just a tad uneasy. And to play that up and to literally be like, let's take, the guru philosophy, let's take everything about the guru and just put it into the head of a villain was genius. I think it was a really smart decision and it's why Zaheer is so great. And the fact that they lay the, essentially are laying the groundwork for it here. And obviously they weren't writing the guru trying to set up what's going to happen with Zaheer. Obviously that didn't, like, we know that. Um, But there is a part of it that almost feels like when they were writing this, they were beginning to have thoughts of like, what if we played this up as a villain? Like, I almost feel like the idea of Zaheer may have happened during the formation of these scenes and was stored away somewhere as a, here's a cool character we could create and eventually was busted out in Legend of Korra. You know what I love too? How like he wasn't necessarily free his he had he had like his girlfriend who he loved and when she died that's when he like reached his final form and like that's like another perfect story to tell how he's he's still human like you know everyone in this show and both Korra and last airbender are are humans at their core and it would have been what except for ozai yeah sure but like no i'm i'm serious ozai is not a human ozai is like that's if there is one like serious complaint with villains and avatars that Ozai is not a character. He's a he's like he's a force. He's purely a force of nature villain. Sure, sure, I agree. But like, 
it would have been very easy for Zaheer to not have friends or like a lover and just have him. And I think him having friends, companions, have who he leads and like a girlfriend is so necessary for his character because it allows you to come to the point where she dies. And then he's like, that's it. I don't care about any, like that's truly me not caring about anything else anymore. And then he just becomes who he's supposed to be. And then he ends up dying. Like, so at least he became who he, he like, what? Didn't he? Uh, it's been so long. He really, Never, he does not die. He appears in book four, oh. dude. Oh yeah. 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 Well, he gets, he gets chained up. Yeah. yeah no, I, and I think that it's it was it was smart of them to tie all this together using the fact that both him and essentially him and Aang, and even though it's not like he's not an he's not one of Aang's villains, that him and Aang are having the same essentially have the same thing holding them to the world. Their their romantic attachment is the thing that holds them to the world. The difference between the two of them is that Zaheer in the moment that Pali is dead, is able to achieve that. And I think that that fundamentally is the difference between the two of them. Yep. I, I do think it's an interesting well, discussion. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think... Zaheer versus Korra. Well, I am 100% sure Aang would try to first convert him Aang would have, to his own the philosophy. the first two villains of Korra, Aang would have slapped in five It wouldn't have worked, obviously. And I... I don't think Aang could have bitch slapped Zaheer that easily, but I think Aang would have still won in the end. I mean, I think Aang would have still won, but I do think that Aang would have had a, a it would have been a very, very different situation. Of him dealing of of Zaheer trying to manipulate Ang because like because it's an Airbender, I it just it would have been fascinating. I don't know. I have to really give that a lot of thought to be honest. Well, and do you think Ang would have suffered PTSD from the situation? Yeah. No. Well, I mean, a it depends on whether Ang breaks his legs, but on. On top of that, I think that um, I, I, I think that the difference is is that the reason Cora uh, suffers so much trauma from this whole situation is because she is kept from being the avatar. She is forced to let others deal with world affairs, and that kills her because her identity is so tied up in being the avatar. I actually think Ang would have handled that actually pretty well because I feel like he would have just been like, "All right." Katara, Sake, you want to go chill? But then I think Zaheer, in order to defeat Aang, because I think Aang completely does at in the end completely outpower him, would have used Katara in some way. He and who knows what could have happened? Would he would he have hurt Katara or worse? We we don't know. And if if that was the case. I mean, actually, yeah. I think that he probably would have been like, let me show you what it's like to be free. Exactly. And then let's say, let's worst case scenario it, and he killed her, that would have set him off in the Avatar. Yeah, but I think he would have went batshit insane in the Avatar. All right, maybe. That's fair. And I think Zaheer 
actually could defeat him if he was out of complete, out of control in the Avatar state, where if he played it strategically, he could have got Aang killed in the Avatar state, theoretically. I, I actually cool I agree with that. I think that that's fair. I think that Zaheer yep. could have... If that was the manipulation, yeah, I think Zaheer would have, would have been able to, to really pull something off there. Yeah. All right. With that, we are going to wrap up. Thank you guys for listening to this little bit of uh, bonus content. Uh, thank you to Corey for sticking on a little bit longer. I know he's about to die, so we should let him go. And uh, with that, we will see you guys next week.